Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website to help you get better results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. With me this week, as always, is John Tidy from reaperblog.net. And we also have a special guest co-host, Ian Stewart, who some of you will remember from the episode on mid-side processing or sum and difference or whatever you want to call it, which many people have said was one of the most mind-bending episodes ever, uh, which I think is a, a great accolade, Ian. Congratulations. I'll take it. <laughs> so this and I'm is, here too. I said you. <laughs> I know, but you didn't get, let me say hi. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, now hang on. No, so I had something. I was uh, last week. I said it, last week we had the devil. Are you? Uh, I can't remember how I was. What I was going to say. So, uh, I, th- I think you said "has a hanging" the first time. Or something the first like time that. I said "has it hanging," which is definitely <laughs> not English. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, there you go. Well, we've already been speaking, John. I know you're well. I don't need to ask. Formality. <laughs> it is. A, well, good luck editing that little there. Uh, yeah, so this is going to be a Q&A episode. People like Q&A episodes, and we decided it was time for another one. The first question comes from Mark B. Hi, Ian and John. In the last episode, you touched on using LUFS meter, but there's some gray area for me that I think would be helpful to address in a future episode, specifically further discussing the different measurements, short, momentary, integrated, etc., meaning how are they used and so forth. Also, it might be helpful when referring to a measurement, defining which one we are talking about, as well as defining pre-mastering as opposed to mastering targets. Thanks and cheers. And this is something that we actually cut out of that episode uh, because I said something and it was completely wrong. Uh, <laughs> and you corrected me, but and which it was good information and it really helped me, but it, it really ruined the flow of the conversation. Right. Because you were it was in the <clears throat> middle of of making a point right so yeah okay so i i mean i actually think maybe we should do an entire show on loudness units because it's a really common question and everybody seems to get confused by them which i don't think they need to be they're not actually that complicated but yeah we'll cover this as as quickly as we can and see how we go so loudness units are loudness units lu and loudness units full scale are lufs or lufs some people say and generally, that's the one that we're using. LUFS is usually what people are talking about. Yeah, I mean, if you want to get if if you want to get kind of picky about it, I think if you're talking about it, you you would be, uh, you can talk about kind of minus sixteen LUFS, right? Because that's mm-hmm. uh, a loudness unit on a scale where zero is at full scale. Um, you wouldn't say three uh, dB or three LUFS more, right? Because right. It would be three LU more, but I mean, honestly, I, that all that kind of stuff is is splitting hairs. Really, you're basically it's their loudness units, um, and if you're talking about kind of between whatever it is, negative ninety six and zero, then their loudness units full scale. So it just means on a scale with zero at the top. I think uh-huh. that what I want to say. I mean, there's actually uh, I did a video which we can put in the show notes that kind of demonstrates this. But if you have a signal with balanced EQ content, the LU FS reading will be very similar to the RMS reading. So RMS is stands for root mean square, and it's what everybody used to use to try and measure loudness before we had LUFS. Now, when you say that, you mean the short term. 
L-U-F-S. Okay, well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I'll come back to that. There are, yeah, there are three different ways. There are three different types of value, or there are three different timescales that you measure loudness units over, right? Which are the momentary, the short-term, and the integrated loudness units. But we'll come back to that in a second. Um, so just the point I wanted to make is, let's say you took a pink noise signal and it measured minus 12 RMS on your favorite meter. If you measure that in LUFS, it will be more or less minus 12 as well. And if you take a balanced musical signal, meaning, you know, kind of uh, not way too much bass or not way too much treble or mid-range or whatever, um, and you measure the RMS level and the LUFS level, they will be similar. Now, the reason I mentioned the EQ is that the whole point of LUFS is that it takes the sensitivity of our ear into account as part of the measurement. So our ears are more sensitive to stuff in the in the mid-range, kind of the 2K region in particular, and we're less sensitive to bass and treble. So if you have a signal that has lots of mid-range in it, um, it will sound louder than a signal with the same RMS measurement that has loads of bass in it, for example. So, and that's the point of LUFS. It's, it gives you uh, an idea of loudness that is closer to the way that we hear it than RMS, which is always used to be the way that it was measured. Um, yeah. And that's why I say with a balanced EQ, because if you have a signal with, say, loads more bass, you will tend to get a higher RMS reading than the LUFS reading. Um, and if you have one right. with a load more mid-range, you'll get a higher LUFS reading, because it sounds louder to us and the, the measurement reflects that, um, than the RMS reading would suggest. So that's kind of what LUFS is. If you talk about the three time scales, we'll do momentary first. That's a really fast reading, tracks up and down nearly as fast as the peak level. I completely ignore it for measuring music. I, I don't have any use for it. Um, I, I use it all day for dialogue editing. Hmm. Interesting. How does it help? So I use it to keep the dialogue levels consistent between minus 23 LUFS and minus 14 LUFS. And I find that that is the sweet spot for dialogue on YouTube and podcasts. So it doesn't sound too compressed for the last year or so. I haven't had any complaints about dialogue volume. So yeah, I use momentary for that because I want to know what every little syllable measures at. Okay, right. And and that's, that's exactly the intention of it. Um, you know, it will track yeah. the changes in loudness very, very quickly, very, very accurately. Then you have the short-term loudness, which is basically that momentary loudness measured over a three-second window. So it kind of smooths out all of that real syllable-by-syllable syllable or beat-by-beat beat detail that you're talking about and shows you uh -huh. a kind of a slower-moving value, which I find is pretty similar to what you would tend to see on an RMS meter or even on a VU meter although VU meters are even more sensitive to bass than RMS. So, you know, yeah. swings and roundabouts. But uh, yeah, so that's, um, it's a short-term value. It gives you information about how the signal is changing over time. Um, so you'll, you know, you'll, you'll see it change for the loud sections versus the quiet sections of the song and, and possibly even within a bar or um, over course of a guitar solo or something. But it's not tracking every tiny little change. So in general, when you're mastering or even mixing, that's the one you want to use. 
that's the one. I mean, honestly, I don't actually. That's the one you reference most. Well, <laughs> if I used loudness meters, LUFS meters, then yes, that's the one that I would reference most. Actually, no, no. Okay, I'll be completely honest. No, the one that I use most in terms of loudness meters is the integrated loudness, right? So that's the third value, and that's an overall value. So imagine the song starts off quiet. It might be kind of tracking down at sort of minus 24 or stuff, and it slowly builds. And then you have a loud section that takes you up to minus 10, and then it dies back again. You're going to get some kind of overall reading. It's just a single number from when you started playing the audio into the meter, when it started measuring until the current time that represents the overall loudness. Um, so it's like an average across the entire piece of audio. So typically you might measure that for a whole song or a whole album or a whole podcast episode, say. The advantage of it is that it's straightforward. Um, the disadvantage of it is that it doesn't give you any detail. So you could have a song that had some really loud sections and some really quiet sections. You know, the integrated loudness is going to be somewhere in between those but you can't tell from that how loud it got at the loudest sections or how quiet it got at the quieter sections. And that information is measured by the loudness range that we talked about in the last episode, um, which is the fourth kind of method of using LU loudness units to measure loudness. And integrated right. is the one that I watch. And I'll, I'll tell you quickly how I use it. So for example, Something that I like to do when I'm mastering in terms of balancing songs, a good rule of thumb is that the loudest sections of each song should be similar throughout an album or a collection of songs. There's lots of exceptions to that rule, but it's not a bad rule to start with. So if you find a f the, the loudest section of a song and just start it playing back, so you have a fresh integrated loudness reading for that section of the song, let's say one of them comes out at minus 12, I might then match another song so that its loudest section also gives me an integrated loudness of minus 12. I mean, you could play the entire song and try and balance them that way, but that can be a bit trickier because if you have a song that's loud all the way through, it'll come out with a higher integrated loudness than a song with more variety. So that's why I measure the, the loudest sections, but I tend to use the integrated loudness in that case because it just gives me a nice stable value. You know, I don't have to kind of look at the meter and kind of go, oh, well, it's kind of hovering around there whatever. Um, and I tend yeah. to find a lot of the um, LUFS meters often show a kind of a bar for the, for the loudest. I find that really hard to read. I prefer a needle display. Um, or actually some of them show a graph, which is pretty cool. So you can see how it changes over yeah. time. That can be pretty useful. So when I am actually mastering, I tend to use the integrated loudness for that purpose. I do pay attention to the short-term loudness, but I do it because I use Dynameter. Because Dynameter shows you the difference between the peak level and the short-term loudness. So the higher the short-term loudness gets, the lower the dynameter reading gets, and that tells me that the peak to loudness ratio is being reduced, and therefore that you might be over-squashing the music. So I kind of pay attention to the short-term loudness indirectly, if you like. Um, but if I translate that, so on dynameter, I recommend you don't go below a PSR, which is the peak to loudness ratio using the short-term loudness. I recommend you don't go below eight. If you want to translate that to an LUFS meter and you're following my recommendation of not peaking above minus one, then I would say at the loudest sections, don't let the short-term loudness get any higher than minus nine, right? Which is 
Minus nine LUFS. Minus nine LUFS, exactly, short term. I mean, if you do what I suggested and just play the loud section, then the integrated loudness is going to be similar, right? If it's kind of consistently around minus nine for that five or 10 second piece that you play, the short term loudness and the integrated loudness are going to be similar. That's really interesting. I actually totally ignored integrated because it, I, I knew that it, it takes into consideration the entire content, but when I'm mastering or when I'm mixing, I'm constantly jumping around to different sections of the song or different songs. I'm soloing things. I, I might be making crazy boosts with the EQ to find problem frequencies, or I'm filtering out things and all this kind of stuff that would change the integrated value. Um, maybe for only a minute at a time, but it's going to mess up the reading. I'd have to restart it, and I'd have to run it through to get the number again. But just by doing the choruses, now I actually have a use for integrated. So thank you for that tip. No, you're welcome. I, I mean, part of the reason I use it that way is that that's just the way that the meter in WaveLab works. So if whenever you start and stop the audio, it will reset the integrated loudness reading. Um, so it basically only kind of maintains its current reading while you're in playback. Um, if you have a meter where you have to keep resetting it, then that could be more annoying. You know, the, the problem you just described. But yeah, basically, I would recommend get things set up so that you're interested in knowing how loud it is. Reset the meter, click play, let it play for 5, 10, 20 seconds, and take a look at that integrated value. And that gives you an idea of the overall loudness at that point, which can be useful to compare. You could compare quiet sections as well. If you know, um, I just find that the loudest section is often a, a good rule of thumb. Just to summarize, I think when you're mixing, I think an integrated loudness of minus 18, minus 20 is pr probably a reasonable thing to shoot for. Short term loudness value is kind of less important, possibly because you're nowhere near pushing things up against the peak level, so you don't need to worry about the peak-to-loudness ratio. And I like momentary for dialogue editing, where you, you're concerned about consistent levels for the dialogue all the way through, and balancing that with music and things like that. Yeah, Section to section of throughout the video, you want your dialogue to be consistent. When you have multiple people talking, you want it to be in the same range without just crushing everything. You want it to sound natural still, so I like momentary a lot for that. Yeah, I can see that that would be useful. And I mean, in theory, I would imagine that if you played back a fairly long section of audio, you would find that your dialogue has a consistent integrated value throughout. And if it has... Well, after editing. Yeah, once, once, you've, once you've mixed and edited <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but like I say, that won't tell you about the extremes. So you would want to watch either the momentary or the short-term loudness in terms of if somebody might be shouting for a section and then talking really quietly for another section. And then the other guideline I would give you is for mastering. In terms of integrated, I think minus 14 is a great value for the majority of the music streaming services. It's actually pretty dynamic by most music standards. So if you want to push it up by a few dBs, personally, I think that's okay. There are other people who would argue with me, but you know that kind of ballpark. I think oh, anything higher than minus 11 integrated probably means that the loudest sections are going to be overly squashed. Um, and like I say, I would always say, don't allow the short term to go above minus nine very often or for very long periods. 
um, because again, that's probably going to be compromising the dynamics. Yeah. Did we answer everything he said? He asked. And then some. Cool. <laughs> I thought it was going to be five minutes. Nope, that's why I wanted to save it. But anyway, that's fine. That's good. And if it saves us doing a whole show on it, that's great. Yeah. The next question comes from James Fair. I like using the K-meters, which uses the Bobcat K-system, and I'm wondering how that compares to LUFS. Actually, he'd like to know what minus 16 LUFS looks like on a K-12 meter. This is why I've asked Ian to be uh, to help us out with this question, because... I know the basics of the K system, but I've never really dug into it and used it myself. So I don't kind of feel that qualified to uh, to dig into the details. So Ian, maybe you can start by just kind of giving people an idea of what the K system is and why they might want to use it. Sure. Um, so the, the K system is uh, a system and not just metering in that it's the, the intent, Bobcat's intent is that it's metering and it's calibrated monitoring. So it's, uh, you know, there are plenty of people that use the metering and love that, but know nothing about the monitoring side of it. Um, so the idea with the system is that zero at whatever case scale you're at, whether it's K20, K14, or K12, that zero mark, you will have your monitor gain calibrated so that it plays back um, Bob's, uh, specification is a combined 86 dB from both monitors, so 83 dB from each monitor. Really, you could set it to whatever is comfortable for you in your room, um, but usually kind of in that range is is about right. Really, the idea is, was to try and bring kind of some standard uh, to the music industry in the same way that it has been in the film industry for years. So that's really kind of where the K system comes from. So you're saying if you if you were going to switch between, say, K12 and K20, you would not only change the metering scale, you would also then adjust the monitoring level. So, exactly. So that zero was the same loudness. So it's kind of like me way back in the beginning saying that I always have one mastering level, right? And exactly. So, yeah, so you have different monitor gain settings for each meter setting effectively really what you're doing is you're changing the amount of headroom that you have to work with at k20 you you have 20 db of headroom over zero at k12 you have 12 db of headroom over zero um in the digital side of things and then you compensate your monitor gain accordingly and part of the whole idea really which is kind of neat if you really start working with it is that you can set your monitor to k20 and you don't even need to look at a meter. Your ears are going to kind of tell you where the sweet spot is in terms of loudness, because you, if you work at that every day, you're just going to know what, you know, about 86 dB in your room sounds like for, for kind of the loud portions. Um, and you can start mixing without even looking at the meters, and you don't have to worry about clipping, and it just kind of it takes a lot of that out of the equation. Um but yeah, effectively, you're you're kind of changing the amount of headroom you have over zero. Okay, so you might, for example, mix at K20, where you've got 20 dBs of headroom above your zero position, which suits a mix environment where things are typically more dynamic. And then you might choose to master at K12, where you've only got 12 dBs of headroom. Um, you would then turn the monitoring gain down because you're pushing the signal up 
closer to peak, reducing the peak to loudness ratio or increasing the, the loudness level, the LUFS level, but you would still hear the same level, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, I like on, on my monitor controller, I have little, it's uh, like a little, like a label maker kind of tape, you know, with the little clicky labels that you can punch out. Mm -hmm. I have those on my monitor controller and just have my different levels set. Um, so it becomes very quick to just adjust them to those positions and, and kind of know where I'm at. Um, the, the interesting thing about the K system is if I should have the website up and I don't, but it's pretty sure it's digido.com is, is Bobcat's website and we can find a link and put it in the show notes, but the, he, he spells out in great detail his, the whole theory behind it and how to implement it. Um, so if you really want to get into it, you know, the full system, not just metering, but getting your monitors calibrated too, that that's a great reference and explains all the history. One of the things he does mention in there is that he anticipated that it would be compatible with future metering standards, e.g. LUFS meters. I don't know that there are any K-meters out there that have been updated in that fashion. Most of the ones that I've seen for the average level use, you know, basically kind of something close to like a VU meter. Like I think it's a 300 millisecond, maybe 400 millisecond integration time. And they're using RMS level, right? RMS, yeah. So again, this is one of those places where comparing, you know, K14 to negative 16 LUFS, it depends a bit. So on the K meters, zero is where I think, does it go orange above zero and then red? Yeah. So below zero is green at zero to plus four is orange or yellow. And then above that is red. So the the idea is to keep your average levels kind of mainly in the green to yellow area and only just maybe go into the red for the very loudest fortissimo sections. Right. I think one of the benefits of this is it it makes you do dynamic mixes and masters because if you push the levels up really, really loud, I know I've confused dynamics with loudness, I'm sorry, but I think you know what I mean. If something is above zero on the K-meter, it's going to be extremely loud in your room because zero is 86 decibels. And that's already yeah. much louder than I usually mix and master at. Yeah. So that's, that's a very good point. And also just the visual feedback of the meters. I was going to say that, um, cause I probably wouldn't have the mix levels that loud, certainly not for a K20, but even if they're a bit quieter so that it's not kind of uncomfortable to listen to, if the meter is, if you've got four dBs worth of orange showing and then it goes red, that's a good visual indicator to me that it, the level's getting too high. Um, and I think if you think about the numbers, K20, if you put in kind of pink noise at zero in a K20 system, it's going to be hovering around minus 20 RMS. And pink noise, the RMS and the LUFS loudness levels are going to be pretty similar because that's a, a balanced signal across the frequency range in terms of power. So in terms of James's actual question of how do minus 16 and K12 relate, for what it's worth, I've generally found, and I, I do, I mix at K20. That's just, if I'm mixing and not mastering, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, I've found that usually those mixes are, if I do an integrated measurement, they're around negative 20 to negative 22. 
And would that's even peaking so, plus four dBs, or do you do you peak around zero? Um, no, I'll I'll some louder sections. I'll I'll peak at plus three or plus four. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, it's usually pretty close. Um, so I, I you know I wouldn't be surprised if if a, a mix or a master at K fourteen were pretty close to to negative sixteen LUFS integrated. Okay, now that's helpful. I mean, I've noticed when I've been doing it that the short-term loudness and the level on the K-meter seem to correspond fairly closely. So if I yeah. set, say, K12, and it's peaking a couple of dBs above, the short-term loudness to me seems to be pushing up towards minus 10. Um, yep. So I think my, my kind of... I think you're right that there's no global translation between the two but as a rule of thumb james if you think that the short-term loudness and the k value are going to be equivalent in terms of where the you know if zero in a k meter is at minus 12 or minus 20 or wherever it is whereas the lufs always goes down from zero you can kind of subtract those two values and figure out where you are and i don't think i explained that very clearly at all (laughs) (laughs) it's it's confusing. It's kind of almost an analog way of thinking of metering, right? Just like, you know, uh, analog levels, you know, plus four dBU is usually negative 18 dBFS, but sometimes negative 20 and sometimes negative 16. It shouldn't be confusing to me because I use VU meters all the time. And I would change So if I'm mastering, my VU meter is calibrated at minus 11, um, which is roughly an RMS level of minus Eleven, and that's where the zero point is in the VMU meter, and I allow it to peak kind of two or three dBs above that. If I'm mixing, I would probably use minus eighteen, um, which is pretty close to the K twenty setting. So they're kind of this is the thing. I, I this is why I haven't delved into K system. I think it's it's kind of almost a mindset issue. You know, if you're if you get used to one way of working, it kind of makes perfect sense. And it's just a question of picking whichever one. Whereas I use the, I used to use the TT meter, and now I use Dynameter to judge, you know, kind of my dynamics and the peak to loudness of what I'm working on, and that feels much more intuitive to me than the K system. But they're they're basically showing you the same kind of information, just looking at it from different angles, if you like. Yeah. Very, very much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so John, you well, uh, did, did how did we do? <laughs> I feel, so there's I feel the like episode. that was quite confusing. That was, yeah, that was quite confusing and went for about half an hour longer than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, James, I hope that helped. If not, let us know and we'll do a follow-up um, and see what happens. Thank you very much, Ian. Um, I absolutely couldn't have tackled that myself because you heard me getting confused even as I was talking about it there. So uh, yeah, thanks for your help. Appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm going to uh, go back to mixing at K20. (laughs) Enjoy. (laughs) See ya. Next question comes from Riley Weller. What are the pros and cons of using low cut and high cut filters while mastering? Okay. Now you didn't understand this question, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, You you understood the words, but you were like, why would anybody do that? Yeah. Or not do that. Like do what it needs. (laughs) <laughs> well yeah but, okay so that's that's the kind of the ideal answer but i i think what he's asking about is i have seen some recommendations out there saying oh always put in say a low cut filter at 20 hertz and a high cut filter at 18 kilohertz or something 
Um, and the yeah. thinking behind that, there's two different types of thinking. One is that nobody can hear down below 20 hertz anyway. So any energy you've got there is just effectively wasting, I want to say bandwidth. I don't mean bandwidth, but you know, just it's energy, if you like. It's it affects using your a, headroom. Yeah, it affects the, well, and you, you might have a compressor that reacts to it. And what's the point of having a compressor react to a sound that you can't hear, you know, that kind of stuff. And I, yes. I kind of agree with that, but my personal feeling is, if there's something down there and it's causing you a problem, absolutely filter it out. If there isn't, don't bother putting another filter in because every filter you put in will have some kind of effect. You know, it'll it'll either mess with the phase, if it's um, a minimum phase filter or if it's a linear phase filter, then it will cause pre-ringing or post-ringing depending on how it works. So don't use it if you don't have to, like you say. And then the, the high cut filter, the idea is, I think, to prevent aliasing problems so yeah aliasing is what happens when you have frequency content that would go above the nyquist frequency so if you're at 44.1 you can record in theory sound all the way up to 22 kilohertz perfectly and that halfway point between zero and the sampling frequency is called the nyquist point um and if you go above that let's say you had some sound at 26 kilohertz if you don't filter that out before it's recorded digitally, uh, what actually happens for complicated mathematical reasons is that it effectively gets folded back down um, and you end up hearing sounds at 22 minus, 26 minus 22, 24, uh, 18 kilohertz um, or even lower. So you start hearing stuff going on lower down the frequency spectrum. And it can be really ugly. I mean, part of the the kind of the classic crunchy sound of old 8-bit samplers that people kind of have nostalgia for is pretty extreme aliasing because those 8-bit chips that they used to use also run at, you know, kind of 8 kilohertz or, or something. So you would get extreme yeah. aliasing because nobody bothered to filter the sounds. Um, and anything that has harmonics that is not filtered out correctly ends up going back into the audible range. So 18,000 is not a problem, but it's more likely to be in the maybe 5,000 range. Yeah, I mean, you could take something like a, a muted trumpet that actually has frequency content that goes way up, kind of 30 kilohertz and up. Um, if you try recording that at 44.1, you've got 10 kilohertz worth of stuff over the Nyquist frequency. So that could be causing artifacts all the way down into the the upper mid range and would sound really quite ugly. Analog to digital converter has an anti-aliasing filter in it, so that should take care of it. Exactly. This is where it gets complicated, and this is where the the advice might be good. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. Any sound that has been recorded by a decent A to D converter will have had all of the high frequency content that would have gone over the Nyquist frequency filtered out. So you're going to get a lovely, clean signal. So you shouldn't have any problems with aliasing there. Let's say you recorded a guitar and you put it through an amp simulator plugin. That works by generating all kinds of extra harmonic content. And depending on the plugin, it might well generate content that is higher than the original sampling frequency. And there's also oversampling, which well, kind of I'll get to that. You know, doubles and triples. <laughs> That's even well. The thing it's, is, if it's complicated, it is complicated. If you have a plugin that doesn't use oversampling, then you could get severe aliasing. Or if you have a plugin that doesn't yeah. use anti-aliasing filtering correctly, you could get severe aliasing. So that's why people often suggest running plugins with oversampling switched on, or even running your entire session at a higher sample rate, 
and then downsampling it afterwards because there should be filtering included in the downsampling process to avoid all of these problems. I think, but, and this is where we kind of get back to the question, uh, why should you use low and high cut filtering? I mean, you should use low cut filtering if you've got base energy that you don't want to remove, and you should use high cut filtering if you're hearing aliasing distortion for some reason. But if those things are not happening, then you shouldn't need to do it, and neither of them should happen you know, if you have a well-recorded signal, it shouldn't have excess energy kicking around at 20 hertz, and it should have been anti-aliased well beforehand, and your plugin should have either anti-alias filtered it correctly, or it should have oversampled it, or it should have otherwise dealt with it. So you can do both of those things, but I think the idea of just always putting those filters in absolutely doesn't make sense. So I completely disagree with that advice to kind of do that as a matter of course, you know? Uh, you know, I mean... yeah. The right answer to any good question about audio is it depends. And the same applies to these. Should I use high and low cut filterings? Uh, it depends. So that wasn't nearly as quick as we hoped it was going to be. Quick, next question. <laughs> Rolander2009 asks, before mastering, do you prefer 24-bit with dither or 32-bit float files? This one really is easy. I don't care. <laughs> um, yeah, They're both absolutely fine, um, provided the 24-bit one is dithered. Um, I mean, can you hear the problems of truncation distortion in a 24-bit file if it's not dithered? Maybe not, but I would still prefer that you dither it because then I know that everything's good. We're not going to have another dither conversation. Next question. <laughs> Don Bernhard writes in, good reminder about reference tracks made me think. I own the Perception plugin. Love it. I use it for comparing before and after compression and such on a single channel in a mix. I've never used it for level matching a reference track with my entire mix. Can it be used for that? If so, is there a specific technique or trick to it? Thanks for a great show. So, uh, yes, Don, I think there's kind of two. I mean, the first thing to say is perception in its current version is not optimized for mixing. It was designed for mastering, and that's how it works best. But you can use it on the stereo output bus of a mix session. And if you want to use it with reference tracks, you can absolutely do that. The trick is to route your entire current mix to a stereo bus so that you can, and then send that to uh, the stereo output. So then you can put the perception pre instance on that bus where your entire mix is going through and you can put the controller on the stereo output as normal. Then what you can do is you can drop other perception source instances onto your reference tracks or onto the tracks where your reference tracks are and it will that so basically what happens is perception will measure your entire mix running through this submix bus if you like and then it will measure the other reference tracks separately and you can balance all of them and use them to compare the other way that people would like to use perception that doesn't work so well at the moment is on an individual track within a mix like say on the vocal within a mix or on the bass guitar or whatever it might be current version doesn't work that but i do have a beta version on my machine now that does do that and that's because we are working towards a version of perception that is optimized for mixing um i'm pretty excited about that i'm not going to say any more yet because it's not ready but watch out for that in future sounds cool hunter wants to know about managing payment for mastering do you take payment up front before starting work if not when you send a first draft how do you protect the file so it can't be used until payment is received um, so again, quick and easy, I do ask for 100% payment upfront. 
Now, I'm lucky that I can do that. Um, I appreciate that not everybody is going to go for that. So you could always ask for 50% upfront. In terms of protecting the file, um, I think the easiest thing is just to put in an early fade out. Uh, you know, if you give somebody two thirds of the track so that they can hear all of the uh, decisions that you made so they have enough they've got enough information there to make a decision you know people use watermarking and all kinds of other stuff i think it's just easier to do a fade out it's it's a bit more of a pain because every so often you forget to remove the fade out when you send the final file or you know those kind of things go wrong but yeah. it's simple and it works so that's that's what i do how about you if it's going to be a longer project i ask for 50 percent upfront, just because i know that it might take me a couple days to do the project or if it's a single song i just get payment at the end, uh, after my first draft. And I rarely watermark files, but I have uh, in the past. There's a there's a Reaper plugin for that called Audio Defender. There's a Reaper plugin for everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and I, I do send MP3s um, just as reference for them. So I know I shouldn't, but... Yeah, I, I mean, I don't particularly have an objection to MP3s. I just, it's another stage I can't be bothered with. You know, if I've exported a WAV, I'm happy for them to have a WAV, um, providing I've got the fade out. If they have payment up front, then I'm happy to do full resolution files. I, mean, I think I should say that I've, I've never been, uh, uh, what's the word? Not defrauded, but, you know, I've, I've never had anybody deliberately not pay me. There was... There's one particular project that was the, the turning point after which I always asked for payment up front, where it took eight months for me to get paid for the job. But that was an, an honest case of financial hardship. You know, it wasn't um, somebody trying to pull a fast one. I now ask for payment up front. I did used to put in fade outs, but, you know, that's it's a kind of an insurance policy rather than, mind you, I think that depends. I'm lucky I have very nice clients. <laughs> Question from Shine Paradise. Wondering what software you recommend for creating DDP files. Okay, uh, again, nice easy one. I use WaveLab. Um, it has all the DDP stuff built into it, and I can use it for the uh, all the mastering processing as well. So I, I like it because I can have the entire project laid out. I can preview all of the gaps. I can do crossfades. I can do uh, track IDs. I've got really detailed control of the track IDs and the crossfades and everything. And then at the end of the day, I just hit export and I get a DDP image. So it's perfect. Uh, but it's pretty pretty expensive. I use the HOFA or HAFA um, standalone DDP CD creator. Mm -hmm. uh, it's so fast to use. I already have CD ready files uh, that I bring in. So 16 bit, 44 one. I just drop them in with my default gap size set to zero. There's no effects processing in there. Um, I, I really like working with Reaper for that. But if you need to make a change, there's volume trim and there's it's really easy to make crossfades or fade things out. Uh, the main thing that I like about it is that it's so quick to put in CD text and all that kind of stuff. Uh, anything that you might have to type out 10 times for 10 songs uh, can just be done once. And there's a button that fills it in for the, the entire album. So little things like that make a big difference. And it's not that expensive. So I highly recommend that one. Yeah, I've, I've heard lots of people recommend Hofa. Um, WaveLab does that stuff of, like, it'll automatically pull the file names in from the, the files that you have in the playlist as well. Um, you know, it's even faster because you 
don't have to export 16-bit files. You can just have the files in there and, and you apply the dither live as it gets written out, um, which is cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think I think Hover is a lot more affordable. Studio One also, uh, you can export DDPs directly. I think that's a pretty good solution. Um, so really, it's a case mm-hmm. of you know what fits your workflow and your your budget. Doctor Audiobot asks, "Hey Ian, would you consider giving an opinion or even make a show about linear phase EQ? They seem so controversial, loved and hated." Many analog studios dislike them and paint them very bad due to pre-ringing, etc. Yeah, this is another one that could be a huge thing. You could almost do a whole episode on it, but let's let's try and cover it quickly. Um, so linear phase EQs are only possible, practically speaking, in digital. The difference is they don't affect the phase or they have a very small effect on the phase of the signal that you're boosting. So basically in a normal, in a traditional analog EQ or a minimum phase EQ, which is the kind of standard digital EQ that comes with most DAWs. And all analog ones are minimum phase. Yeah. Right. When you, I don't know whether all of them, I, I wonder whether there are some esoteric ones that do something slightly different. Anyway. They might be maximum phase. <laughs> I think that, I think it might be a bit gray, I, but honestly, this is where my technical, I, I, my eyes start to glaze over. Yeah, as far as I know, there's there's no uh, hardware linear phase or analog linear phase. No, there's definitely no analog linear phase. Uh, it's just not possible because yeah, you know, EQs are built up of kind of complicated systems of delays and stuff, uh, and there is inevitably always in an analog EQ uh, some kind of shift in the phase depending on the frequency. So you know, where there's absolutely no EQ happening, the phase of your signal will stay the same. But at the kind of the center of the boost and around the transition points where you're, where the, the bell or the shelf or whatever it is is happening, there will be changes to the phase. Now, it's debatable whether that's audible. Right. This is the interesting thing because I always recommend linear phase EQ for mastering um, because I prefer not to have those phase shifts. But in theory, there's no particular reason you should hear them. And I have a theory as to why I think you can hear them, but I don't know whether it's right or not. Um, <laughs> but what I would say is this, having kind of had my feeling that linear phase is better brought into question, I've done some tests and I have done AB, blind AB comparisons between the same EQ cut with a linear phase or cut or boost, whatever, the same EQ change with a linear phase versus a minimum phase EQ, and I can hear the difference. So my theory about why I can hear the difference is that it, it basically applies to fairly narrow uh, EQ cuts. And the point about that is that the phase changes more quickly for a narrower notch, say. I think if you have an instrument that has a broad frequency response, uh, let's say you've got a uh, maybe a strummed guitar, right? So you've got lots of harmonics. And then obviously you don't play the same thing all the time. That changes. So the pitch changes. I think as those frequencies in what's being played move up and down, kind of over the area where it's being EQ'd, I think that's when you start to hear the phase changes coming into place because you're hearing a disruption. I mean, the point about the phase changes is that they disrupt what is natural, what was originally there in the signal. Um and linear phase retains all of those phase relationships, so it doesn't mess with that stuff. 
I mean, where it definitely becomes a problem is if you combine two signals. Let's say you have uh, parallel two two parallel ch uh, channels with the same signal on, and you apply an EQ to one and not to the other. When those two signals get summed back together, the changes in phase are going to cause peaks and nulls in the signal, and you're get this going to get this thing called comb filtering because the the when you look at it on a frequency plot, it looks like the teeth of a comb. So you can definitely hear it if you have two signals running together and one of them has EQ and the other one doesn't. I think you can also hear it just if you're listening to a stereo signal, especially if you've got narrow EQ boosts and cuts. But maybe somebody with more technical information or knowledge will come and shoot me down in that. Linear phase also has problems as well. Exactly. Um, you know, even if you can hear those changes in traditional EQs, that doesn't mean you should necessarily always reach for a linear phase EQ because um, for mathematical reasons that I don't fully understand, um, a linear phase filter will do something called pre-ringing. All filters ring. To me, it always sounds a little bit like, you know when you're um, up on stage with a microphone and there's a little bit of feedback in the uh -huh. in the in the chain so you, you say a word and you just hear a tiny little kind of ping at a particular frequency a tiny little not not kind of full-on feedback loop but just that's starting to feedback feeling that's to me how uh -huh. ringing filters tend to sound and the whole thing about linear phase filters is that depending on how they're designed they can have a thing called pre-ringing which is that they actually start to ring before the transient of the sound that caused the ringing because the way yeah. the <clears throat> digital processing works in order to achieve the linear phase response is it involves a certain amount of delay is why they don't often get used in mixing because there's a lot of latency involved which usually you don't want in a mixing and recording environment in mastering that latency is not such a big deal um, but the pre-ringing is still there and some people say that that pre-ringing is very unnatural if you want to hear this um there is a fantastic demonstration of minimum phase versus linear phase filters. It's a, a video that Dan Worrell did for uh, FabFilter. We'll include the link mm -hmm. to that in the show notes so you can take a listen. He um, creates a pretty extreme example where he's got a kick drum and he uses a very sharp linear phase filter to chop out some of the low frequency content of that kick drum. And you can really hear this kind of whoop sound as the the... The filter starts to sing, if you like, before that you even hear the note. Um, and that obviously is unnatural, and it takes away from that kind of sharp attack on the kick drum. So one piece of advice is, if you want to use a low-cut filter, don't use linear phase, especially not if it's a really aggressive filter and if you have a really exposed kick drum. Now, having said that, personally, I've used low-cut uh, linear phase filters often, I never actually thought to myself, huh, I'm messing up the transient on that kick drum. I think Dan worked pretty hard to find his example where you could clearly hear this effect happening. But it is a real theoretical thing. There's another factor, which is that, um, you know, analog EQs cause these phase changes. Analog is, I'm going to say it's quite a natural sounding thing, you know, it... It, it's based on the electronics of the real world. So there is an argument that says that the phase changes that happen with analog EQs are good and that they flavor the sound in a, in a, a natural, pleasing way. 
and that actually that's preferable to linear phase. I personally don't have any kind of concrete evidence that I could say that I definitely believe that. I have cases where I have thought, oh, I don't like the sound of this filter. I've changed it to linear phase and I've thought, now I'm happier. In fact, it's happened to me three times this week because the FabFilter Pro Q allows you to choose not only whether you're minimum phase or linear phase, but even the degree of to which the filters are linear phase and therefore the amount of latency that you're involving. So you can play with all of this stuff to your heart's content. Um, and yeah, there've been a few times when I've had to have, you have quite a narrow notch because of a kind of honky resonant frequency in a, in a vocal. And I just listened to it and I wasn't happy with it, switched it to linear phase and I became happy. So that's an example where I felt like the minimum phase EQ was less natural and I preferred the linear phase EQ, but there is this idea that maybe minimum phase kind of analog sounding EQs are better. There's also the fact that if you have some kind of phase strangeness or even an EQ strangeness in a mix that wasn't produced digitally, that was produced through natural acoustic or analog processing uh, means, that will have a phase shift associated with it. And if you apply the right EQ to correct that, you'll also correct the phase shift back to the way it should have been. So that's another example, possibly, for choosing to use minimum phase rather than linear phase. Um, for me personally, I think if we're going to sum it all up, when I'm working, I'm not too worried about whether it's linear phase or minimum phase. I mean, one of my favorite EQs is the one that comes with the TC Electronic um, power core processing. That stuff, as far as I know, is not linear phase, but I've used it for decades and really like the sound of it. But whenever I tend to go for narrow cuts or boosts, at that point, I will usually switch over and use a linear phase EQ instead because I've heard problems with them before. And if I'm doing a low cut, I will never use a linear phase EQ to avoid any theoretical problems with pre and post ringing. Yeah, I, I don't really think about it that much. I have, I don't. I'm not in the habit of using a linear phase EQ all the time just because I don't like the latency. That's the main thing. And if I don't like the sound of one EQ, I might try something different. But that's usually, usually the sound of the EQ isn't something I really even think about. It's more of how does it feel under the mouse? <laughs> like, is there is the graph big enough in the low frequencies so that I can really dial in the low end the way I want? Or can I have MS or, or can I just affect the left side? Things like that are more important to me than, than linear phase or not. Yeah, I mean, no question. The, you know, if, you, if, if the song needs a 4 dB boost at 100 hertz to fill out the bass region, it doesn't matter how you achieve that, that's going to be the most important thing to get right. Um, and then the rest of it is, is really, you know, final few percent subtleties, I think. Um, but I'd be interested to hear actually from any listeners who, I mean, maybe you've done these experiments yourself or maybe having listened to this, you're curious and you do some tests, you know, but like I say, I've done blind tests. I know I can hear the difference. I'm just not entirely sure on the, the theoretical reasons why, but I'd be interested to know what other people, you know, what their experiences are, um, and whether they think it matters. Um, at the end of the day, you know, you're not going to cause any major upset either way, depending on what you choose. It, it can be a preference thing. Sometimes the theoretical considerations don't translate into what you finally hear. You know, it's one of those if it sounds right things. Um, but definitely something to bear in mind if you're if you're using a narrow cut and you feel that it's getting a, some kind of strange 
uh, slightly comb filtery feel to it. It might be worth trying to switch the, the EQ into linear phase or use a linear phase EQ instead and see if that helps. Yeah, like it, the the cut actually draws attention to itself as much as the problem originally did. Yeah, exactly. Of- if you if you so okay, here's here's a classic example. If you have a singer who cradles the an SM58 mic and their hand wraps their hands around the the the, the pop shield, you know, the the silver um, mm-hmm. kind of thing that protects the capsule at the end. You Cupping got this the mic. kind of you, yeah, cupping the mic, you get this this kind of effect. Um, mm-hmm. And so that kind of gives you all of these resonances, right? The, the shape of the hand is causing all these upper mid-range resonances that I personally really dislike. If you go in with an EQ to try and notch some of those, the peaks that that causes out to kind of even out the frequency response and reduce that effect, it should work, right? It should make it sound better. If it makes mm-hmm. the EQ response sound better, but it still doesn't sound quite right to you, that might be a case for trying linear phase EQ. Because, you know, I mean, there's two possible theories there. One is that this is an effect that's caused quite naturally by <laughs> cupping your hands around the mic. Um, it is in the analog domain. It's an analog domain effect. <laughs> so if you follow that theory, then using a minimum phase EQ that, that includes some phase shifts should be a good thing. But I'll give you an example of where it didn't work. I had a guy who recorded a, the lead vocal in literally a cubicle room, right? So it was the same width, height, and front to back dimensions, which is the worst possible acoustic you can have. And it was small. It uh-huh. was something like uh, 2.4 meters by two, you know, four meters, basically a broom cupboard or something. And he, and he, I think he sang right in the middle of the room, right at the worst point. So all of the sounds were kind of bouncing back off the walls, reflecting on each other, cancelling out, boosting, all the rest of it. It was horrific. And I put in something like five or six really narrow notches to take out some of these horrible frequencies. And I, I, I did it. I automatically did it with a linear phase EQ, just because I thought, well, these are going to sound horrible if I don't. And I got to the end of it. And it was like, a, I was quite amazed that it worked as well as it did. But B, it suddenly occurred to me to do a quick test. So I did a quick switch over, switch the EQ over to kind of normal mode, minimum phase mode. Um, and sure enough, it just sounded all wrong. You know, it kind of, it sounded better in terms of the EQ response, but wrong in all kinds of other ways, which again, I th- I, I put that down to the, to the phase changes. Yeah. It, it is weird to think of a signal being out of phase in certain frequencies, right? Exactly. I mean, the, the, there's lots of evidence that we, our ears are not that uh, sensitive to absolute phase. Um, that's not to say they're completely insensitive, but it's definitely a small, subtle effect. Uh, but I, this is what I think about, you know, the point about notches and, and sharp boosts in the signal is that those changes happen very rapidly. And that, I don't think, does happen very often in the natural, in, in the real world. Again, I I don't have the kind of the theory to back that up, but my instinct is... So, I mean, another kind of rule of thumb is if you're nice, broad, gentle EQ boosts, you're probably fine with a, pretty much any kind of EQ. But, you know, the, mm-hmm. the sharper the change gets, the more attention you need to pay to this kind of stuff, I think. I would agree that, with that. Cool. So there you go. I think that's our last question. Um, I think there's plenty of stuff there for people to dig into. Um, thank you very much. stuff for us to cut out. Yeah, lots of editing for John to do. <laughs> um, and thank you, John, for helping collate the questions from YouTube in this case. Um, and and for... somewhere from the website as well. 
Yep, absolutely. Um, and everybody listening, please keep your questions coming. We can't promise to answer all of them, but it we really I really like getting questions. You know, it, it gives us ideas for future shows. Um, it tells us where the information we're needing to give you maybe needs to be improved or whatever. Um, and it's just great to know that people are listening. Um, yes. So, yeah. Thanks, John, for helping me out, as always. My pleasure. And thanks to Ian from earlier on in the show, the other Ian. Um, we still need to do a show where we have Ian Stewart and Ian Kerr from Meter Plugs as a guest, so there's three Ians, and nobody will know who the hell we're talking to. But anyway, <laughs> um, thanks to Kaylee Law for the music, as always. Please head over to reaperblog.net to see what John is up to. Uh, check out productionadvice.co.uk where I put all of my videos and blog posts. Please head over to iTunes to leave us a rating or review if you enjoyed the show and please tell your friends. And thanks for listening. I'm not going to get into a dither tangent. John, but if you adjust the levels or the fades in Hofa, I'm guessing it will redither those. I have no idea. I've n- I never have. Okay, so I think I will just say, in case it doesn't, I don't recommend you do that. Anything like that, where you're exporting your file and then bringing it back in to build the DDP image, I would recommend you make no changes at all to the audio. You just use it for sequencing and gaps and CD text and all that kind of stuff.